This is Daniel Figella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. It's not every company that can get a pre-money valuation in the multiples of billions, but Samba Nova Systems is just one such organization. Founded in Palo Alto, California by prominent computer science researchers, Samba Nova offers hardware, software, and what they call data flow as a service. Among the many industries where Samba Nova operates is healthcare, and that's indeed going to be the focus of today's interview. Our guest this week is Bill Fox, who has brought previous AI and data-related products into the healthcare space, previously with companies like Mark Logic, also based out in the Bay Area. Bill Fox speaks with us this week as to what Samba Nova's team is seeing in terms of the core opportunities for computer vision and artificial intelligence in the future of healthcare. There's a number of use cases covered here, and there's some common themes, among them diagnostics and telehealth. Uh, we have not heard that much about telehealth on this program over the years, but it's interesting to see what a company who's raised as much money with as much prominence as Samba Nova has, what they're actually seeing as those core opportunities in the telehealth domain. So Bill walks through some of those, talks about what future healthcare transformation might look like, and I hope provides an interview for those of you who are listeners that's going to give you a little bit of a looking glass into what the future of healthcare might be in terms of where the near-term value of AI might land. And this episode is sponsored by Samba Nova. If you're interested in reaching Emerge's global audience on the AI and Business podcast or newsletter or website, uh, stay tuned to the end of this episode and there'll be more information about that. Without further ado, let's fly in. This is Bill Fox with Samba Nova Systems here on the AI and Business podcast. So Bill, we've got a lot to cover here in the world of life sciences. This is a space you've been in for quite some time. And uh, the first use case and domain of life sciences I want to be able to cover with you is drug discovery. Before getting into AI opportunities, I want to kind of tee up how the process works today and why it's so critical for pharma firms. And then we'll, we'll get into the AI stuff if we could. Sure. You know, so, so pharma really runs on the blockbuster drug. You know, that's the game is trying to find that next blockbuster. And it's not just for profits for the company, but that's, you know, these finding cures for things like diabetes and, and, and treatments for these chronic diseases that millions and millions of people have is really the goal. And traditionally, how it's been done has been very, very difficult, very time consuming, a very long process and very expensive. So you'll hear different quotes seven years, you'll hear 10 to 15 years from idea to pharmacy, you'll hear 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion. In any case, it takes a really long time and it costs a lot of money. And the problem there is that you're constantly making this huge bet. And what it causes is we saw a few years ago with Alzheimer's drugs, a whole bunch of clinical trials were stopped sort of midstream because they looked like they weren't promising. And if you're doing a 10-year process and you're spending billions of dollars, it's kind of hard. You get halfway through and it's not looking that great, you're going to just cut it off. So that process, which is kind of, you know, I've heard it compared to like an industrial, pre-industrial revolution. You know, a scientist is sitting at their bench and they're trying to find proper targets trying to find the molecules that will bond to that protein that will have the right effect on it that will constitute eventually a drug. And it's a very hit or miss process. Now, obviously, we have a lot of amazing drugs on the market. So just like that artisan, 
they've built some beautiful things that way, but it's really inefficient. It's really expensive. So now with AI, hopefully we can augment that process quite a bit and make it better. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's hardly a more important thing for the financial sustainability of a, of a pharma firm than to do drug discovery well. And in terms of their positive impact, it's the same thing. And it's difficult for me to think of anything in business that costs billions plural as a norm. It's very, very difficult. I mean, financial services, oil and gas, these are really, really big sectors. Very hard for me to think about that. So clearly dollars at stake and consequences at stake. And like you said, if we're halfway through, we've invested a ton. Sometimes we have to cut that off. Very tough. There's a lot of areas where AI can hopefully not only speed up this process, but you know, help cure more of these diseases or come up with effective treatments. Talk a little bit about some of the opportunities for AI that, that in your perspective are, are really going to be big deal in the years ahead. Sure. So there's a lot of challenges when, when you start to take this apart. And one of the first ones that all the big pharmaceutical companies have is they have a tremendous amount of data, a tremendous amount of knowledge locked inside the organization, but it's siloed all over the place. Sometimes in the worst case scenario, it's in people's heads or it's in notebooks or it's in a database that they created for something they're doing, but all these databases aren't connected. All the data is in different formats. Some of it's unstructured, some of it's structured. So it's been very difficult in the past to put that data together into what we would now call a knowledge graph. So to get all that information into a form where it can be explored in the way the human brain works. So what's the relationship between these proteins and molecules and disease pathways in the way that a scientist would think about it? So that's where natural language processing is really important. So you can use that to understand all that data put it together in a form where scientists can much more quickly search it, understand it when he's trying to find targets for a particular disease that he's trying to find a drug for. So natural language processing comes in there and that's really important in building that knowledge graph. One of the really interesting and sort of unique things that I found in you know, some recent reading was that AstraZeneca, for instance, is using recommendation models on top of a knowledge graph to try to even speed that target discovery up more. So you had, now you have the knowledge graph, you have a recommendation model that can go into that knowledge graph and try to find targets itself and sort of, in essence, do the Netflix for the scientists. Yeah, yeah. Some targets that you might want to look at because we know that you're looking for these kinds of things. And this, this is the pathway that you're looking for. Maybe you should look at these. So that can then give you know, another layer of automation before the scientist needs to start getting into it in vitro. Yep. Yeah, as opposed to just sort of starting top to bottom. All right, hey, here's everything related to this molecule and you know this disease pathway or whatever the case may be. Let's start reading. You know, instead of doing right, that, you know, have, have yeah. fun spending the next two years. <laughs> exactly. Easily. So Easily. If you can turn that two years into six months or three months or three weeks, and that process repeats itself again and again and again. So you know, you're, you're really trying to take that initial stage from kind of in, in vitro to in silico. And how far can you get in silico 
before you eventually obviously will have to go into the actual, you know, the animal trials and the human trials and all yep. that. Yep. How far can we get and how much can we speed up those first missteps and those first natural, you know, looking around in the dark, how much can we speed that up so that we can have a much higher success rate and get there quicker? And when we talk about NLP, you know, there's so many types of data that I, I suppose come to mind here. You know, we think about what's been published in, you know, medical journals and findings about, you know, this disease or this treatment or this drug or these side effects or what have you. There's also uh, clinical data from physicians, organizations or, or uh, hospitals or what have you about records of treatment for different kinds of diseases and all, all kinds of ways to tap into that. What's the plethora of information that, you know, you were sort of referring to here when, when it comes to that real opportunity for, for NLP? Am I missing any big categories we want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's conference data, there's the PubMed sort of papers data, there's data that's locked inside EHRs, unstructured data that's locked inside EHRs. There's obviously a tremendous amount of chemical data and data about molecules and cells. There's digital notebook data that exists inside the pharma. You could almost just keep going. Um, so Yes. So you, you really can't um, underestimate it. And then when you get into sort of biotech and genomics, now you want to use genomic data. You know, was, the cell is a 20,000 dimensional object. You know, you get into the numbers in the trillions really, really quickly. Yeah. yeah. So the data is all, almost unfathomably large. And previously, you know, what the problem was is using the technology sort of that was available at the time, you can come up against a wall where it's just too big. Yeah, can't uh, calculate it, yeah. Yeah, where the image is too big or there's too much data or it's too slow because there's so much data, there's too many variables in the model. So that's really where this sort of next generation of AI-specific solutions, solutions, hardware and software solutions being developed to address AI specific workloads, you know, across all the various areas of computer vision, NLP, recommendation. That's where we're going to unlock a tremendous amount of value hidden inside all this data. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about some of the advances that have gotten us here, clearly you folks are sort of working at the, the cutting edge of the tech itself, not necessarily even just you know, a newer interface or, you know, slightly better algorithm for this. You, you folks are sort of leaning into where this, this technology is going. What are some of the core advances from the perspective of the technology that have allowed us to now do so much more than, you know, even five years ago, never mind 10 years ago? Yeah, so there's been this evolution in the chip. And I mean, I guess you do have to go back and sort of understand Moore's Law, so there's this idea called Moore's Law that started maybe 30 years ago that, you know, this is why you wanted a new laptop every two years, because every couple of years, the chips got twice as fast and you wanted the new thing. Well, that's sort of really slowed down to almost a stop over the last decade. And there's some other things like Denard's Law that have to do with energy, but we don't want to get too far into that. Yeah, yeah. In any case, the traditional chips are not up to doing the AI-specific workloads that we want to do now. And the way these models are growing, so, you know, however many years ago you had the, is it a cat or is it not a cat? Yep. And that was like, big yep. deal. look at this, this computer can tell whether there's a cat in this picture or not. Well, now you're up to 150 billion variables or 200 billion variables in, a, in an NLP model. 
So one of the things that needed to be addressed is, you know, fundamentally new hardware, a fundamentally new chip that can is up to being able to look at a true high resolution image on a single chip as opposed to having, and we'll talk about this later, but yep, taking it apart and putting it back together. Yep, yep. They can look at this sort of endless amount of variables to refine and make an NLP model more accurate. So, and, and can also work with sparse data. So it's, it's addressing that and then also making it easier to use. You know, not every organization has a hundred data scientists or a hundred AI and ML specialists and have to worry about how much memory do I need and what does my cache look like and how many, you know, what's my energy and how many sockets, you know, and all these things. So what we tried to do was, was not just address the hardware issue. And, and that's a hard thing. And you really need to have the chops to do that, which luckily we do, but also to make it so you can roll it onto the floor and plug it in and start running algorithms. Yeah, so the, the ease of use, certainly a barrier to entry in every sector, life sciences being being no exception. So a little bit of improvements in the ease of use and then also just in the nature of, of compute, the ability to, to tackle these astronomically larger. I liked your stat about a cell. I've never heard anybody mention that. but uh, Yeah, I, I heard it on that. I'm pretty sure it's true because I heard a very smart scientist say it on a, uh, on a conference, on a webinar on YouTube. But It's a nice you know, clip there. It's good. It's good. We talk about democratizing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to say that, but, but how are you going to really do it? And, and the way to really do it is to make it so that you have a solution. You know, there's some very common models across these areas. If you're going to do recommendations, you're probably using the DLRM model. If you're doing stuff with computer vision, there's the UNET model. You know, there's BERT large if you're doing an LP. So if we can make it possible to sort of just bring your data, bring it into the model and start training what you need to be training to do what you're doing, you know, that can really jumpstart AI efforts for these organizations. Yeah, speeding up that, I guess, off the starting blocks time. And I guess that'll spin us into, you know, the next use case here on the list to explore, which is telehealth. You know, you and I were chatting a little bit before the, the mics were on around how this was something on, on maybe their three to five year roadmap. And then it was on their next week roadmap, you know, when COVID hit, this is not going away. This is clearly a gargantuan shift in terms of percent of service done through telehealth. And, and there's 0% chance of us sliding all the way back to where we were. So talk a little bit about kind of how critical that process is. I think people think, uh, Bill, telehealth, okay, you mean just having a meeting with my doctor. So I'm going to have, I'm going to book my time and then I'm just going to be on the phone instead of showing up in person. There's more moving parts. Talk a bit about the process and we'll talk about the AI fit. Yeah. So, so, you know, you put that pretty well, really well, there is a lot more to the process. So the first part that healthcare has always been pretty bad at is sort of the doc patient directory, uh, doctor directory matching the patient with the doctor. So a patient might have a pain in their side. How do they get from, I have a pain in my side and I don't just want to go to the hospital or go to the doctor. How do they get from there to being matched with the right doctor to get, you know, so there's a symptom checker in there. And that symptom checker is basically running off a large knowledge graph and then making a recommendation. So you're putting in all your symptoms and it's saying it sounds like it's this. Therefore, you need a gastroenterologist. So now we're going to look at the gastroenterologist. Now we're going to get into all these certain, you might think, you know, 
mundane details about where do you live and when do they open and do they take your insurance and all that. And then what's their schedule? Do they really have an appointment next Wednesday? There is a massive issue around people showing up the doctor. Oh, we don't really take that insurance. Well, it says on the website that you do. Oh, we're not taking new patients. It says on the website that you do. This is like the classic sticky, gunky, bothersome issue, isn't it, Bill? I mean, this is why there's somebody at the front desk all day long. Like, well, you know, let me check if we take that. Okay. Let me see if Dr. Stevens, oh, that's lunch. I don't, yeah, on that day, it's not, it's like, that's endless. So being able to do that yeah. matching, it feels like we got to get our data house in order if that's going to happen. Yeah, and that, and that's before you get into you know an actual virtual appointment, monitoring patient you know medication adherence virtually. It's being used in virtual clinical trials. They're using you know basic, you know I'm going to take a video of myself taking my pills I've every seen day. It. Yeah, yeah, great and stuff. I monitor the patient. Then there's a lot of remote patient monitoring advances going on. So there's there's a hundred startups in the remote patient monitoring space that are whatever it is that needs to be measured on that patient. They're taking in all that data through an IoT device, usually Bluetooth, and bringing all that data to bear. And then when does the doctor need to be alerted? When did that person need, need an alert? So all these phases of actual sort of virtual care, and there's a big movement too around taking more intense care into the home. So this is not necessarily clinical telehealth, but when do I actually need to get a medical professional into that home? So what kind of data do I need to make sure that that happens when it needs to happen? So in essence, you're you're moving these things that traditionally you had this very clear sort of, I don't feel that bad, I'll just go get some DayQuil. Feel pretty bad, I'm gonna call the doctor and go in. I feel really bad, I'm gonna go right to the hospital. Now there's all these steps in between and you have all these different treat, you know, the urgent, you know, obviously everyone almost now has been to urgent care. So you have the urgent care alternative, you have, you know, Walmart does primary care. You have, you know, Amazon has an online pharmacy. So you have all these different ways to interact with the healthcare ecosystem now and all that decision-making and a lot of that interaction is done virtually through chatbots and virtual assistants and all that, and that all runs on AI. Yeah, yeah. This is really doubling down on this idea of recommendation. You, know, you talked about doctor matching. Okay, here's the kind of person I am. Here's you know where I live. Here's maybe my health history. Here's what I'm telling you my symptoms are. Here's the doctor that best fits that within a reasonable time bounded horizon. You know, for whatever times I have available or something. So there's there's a matching problem there that that AI can clearly help with. When you talk about remote patient monitoring or even virtual assistance, which you just mentioned, where else does recommendation help to level up the virtual patient kind of experience here? Well, whenever you're, if you think about sort of clinical decision support, whenever you're basically helping to make a patient or a provider help them make a decision. What you want to do is sort of narrow down the field and say, looks like you have these three choices, or it looks like it could be one of these three things. Well, if those are the wrong three things, you know, we're in a lot of trouble. And and what we talk about with the recommendation models and why accuracy is so important is a lot of recommendation models in the past, you know, when people think about this, they think about either Netflix or Amazon, you know, oh, you bought these three sweaters, you might like this sweater or you watch these three movies, you might watch this one. 
if I recommend a movie to you and you're like, oh, I never watch that or I never buy that sweater, that's no big deal. Not a big deal at all. Yeah. But if it's wrong in the healthcare area, it's it can hard. be a big deal. Really hard. Yeah. So we want to be able to make sure that we can use all the data and that we can make these recommendation models as, as accurate and as smart as possible so that we can start extending the reach of where they go. Again, taking that automated part farther so that the experienced actual healthcare providers, the nurses, the doctors, the other healthcare providers, that they can use their energy where it's really needed. And these sort of more run-of-the-mill or daily things can be handled, but they have to be handled right. They have yeah. to be handled really because this isn't an area and, and you know and that that is an obstacle to adoption no doubt and and we constantly sort of circle back to this theme as to what's gonna what's gonna tip the scales there so I saw an interesting thing last week some scientists I want to say in Australia but I'm not sure they came out with in essence an explainable AI for breast cancer diagnosis and what it is, is it basically creates a heat map of the image that the AI was reading. So you can actually understand pixel by pixel what the AI, in, in essence, was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been a huge obstacle to adoption is nobody wants to say, you know, we have this diagnosis, the AI made it, but I can't tell you how it made it. It just did. That's, again, okay with the sweater and the movie, not okay with a uh, serious diagnosis. So we're tackling that explainability issue. So in, in that instance, the more high resolution, the more data we can use in that decision-making and the more we can make that decision-making transparent, we're going to be able to move deeper into that process. Yeah, and, and you're of the belief that you know, even the virtual assistant sort of aspect of things might also be leveled up with recommendations. In other words, if I'm chatting with whatever it is, Mayo Clinic or the hospital up the street or whoever, about you know what I'm experiencing, maybe symptoms that maybe even there there could be recommendations about when to really prompt somebody to come in versus when to ask them more questions. So there could be recommendations around you know things that they could you know do at home to feel better or something. Are, are, where are you managing recommendations in in the the virtual assistant part of this mix? Yeah, so you know where the research is going, there's always been clinical decision support. So there's always been sort of some basic tools that could be used that, you know, you think of in terms of a doctor using them. I have a patient and he's on these three medications. I need to prescribe a medication, a fourth medication for a new thing. You know, what are the drug interactions? What's the best thing that I can prescribe for this patient? The new research is around what they're calling health recommendation systems, which are, you know, can a machine learning application really help a doctor think about the right sort of pathway for treatment, what that episode of care should look like, what's the best total picture for this patient. So if I'm going to interact virtually with the health system at three o'clock in the morning because I'm having some kind of pain, you know, the better job that that system can do based on how much data it's feeding off of, how much data it can tap into about that patient, as well as how many, you know, millions of data points around that condition or that symptom that it can tap into, you know, that can be an important part of making that interaction more meaningful as opposed to just the default to, 
you should go to the emergency room right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So there's, yeah, there's a, a level up in terms of granularity, specificity, personalization that that whole experience could, could have. Okay, yeah. And I guess this spins us into, you know, you're starting to lean into computer vision here with your, your mention of breast cancer. We can go into computer vision. You know, I know that a, a use case that you and I have chatted about is around uh, diabetic retinopathy, uh, which people, you know, who are not in this sector may want a quick uh, definition of. But I think it's a, a nice representative use case of the, the potential for computer vision to do good. For, for patients and for doctors, maybe walk us through, you know, what that is, how the process works now. And, and then again, we'll, we'll get into the AI portion as well. Yeah. So, you know, di diabetic retinopathy is an example that's being used quite a lot in discussions of computer vision. And interestingly, they're finding that you can see a whole lot more in the eye than they ever thought was possible. So you can get a diagnosis from a non-invasive, really fast, easy way of diagnosing, which is, is looking at the human eye. And, you know, in these, in our, in richer countries, we think, well, I'm just going to go to, you know, a retinal specialist who specializes in this. He's going to do this and or she's going to do this. And that's what I want. But in many, many countries, there's massive shortages of ophthalmologists. And this is really a theme that goes beyond this because there's two sort of macro trends one, that there's going to be a shortage of 10 million doctors, nurses, and midwives in the world by 2030, which isn't that far away. And I think it's by 2050, one in every four people in America and Europe is going to be over 65 when you start to have some of these issues. So if you can have an effective diagnostic based on really high resolution computer vision that allows you know, maybe millions of people around the world to have this screening and find out this information earlier, as opposed to just simply not having it because the ophthalmologists are not there to do it. You know, that's a huge difference. And it's not just a, you know, making it slightly better. It's a having it or not. What they're finding now is that they can understand a lot more than that from looking in the eye. And they're starting to be able to determine you know, is it a male or a female, which they always thought was like an impossible thing. Wow, interesting. And now you can start to see that. Okay. So the higher resolution that we can have in computer vision, and one of the big problems in, in computer vision to think about it is that some of the images are, are, are so high resolution, you know, like we said before, where this stuff started was, you know, is it a cat or is it not a cat? You don't need it too sophisticated, although you'd be surprised how many variables are in that model. But when you start to get into, you know, earlier detection of a tumor or something like that, and you want to look at a really high resolution image, well, currently, because of the limitations of the chips, you have to do, and we won't go too far into this, but patching and tiling and bounding. So a lot of, and you have to downsample the image so that it so that you can look at it. So there's a lot of things that have to be manipulated and taken apart because the chip can't handle all that resolution on one chip. Well, now, you know, for instance, what we do on, you know, on our technology, you don't have to do that. So you can look at an entire high res image all at once without downsampling it or patching it or tiling it or having a pathologist bound it and all those things. And that's going to really be able to advance what, what we can do there. Yeah, I guess the, the hypothesis here would be that if we figured out how to 
an MRI or an x-ray of the chest, for example, if we figured out how to take all those slices and do something with it, then if we could take the entirety of the image, maybe there's entirely new models, deeper levels of granularity, better context across the, the, the whole that might coax out those patterns better, faster, you know, get us the result we're looking for. This is, I guess, what the hope is, if we can have better chips that we can do that job better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're thinking about looking at a 3D image of a tumor or something like that, or, you know, being able to find, you know, detect something earlier. So obviously we want, you know, the whole idea of a neural network is that it works like the brain. So we want those neural networks to be able to see the way that, you know, certainly when a doctor looks at an image, he's looking at the whole image. So we want the AI to be able to do that in the same way. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you mentioned the example of uh, retinopathy and looking at images uh, of the eye. There's some really interesting stuff. I was at visiting MIT, I don't know if it was six or seven years ago, looking at basically using mobile phones for, for some of that retinal scanning stuff. Of course, things are getting astronomically more sophisticated now in terms of even just mobile diagnostics, never mind all the stuff that we could do in a facility. But you brought up the really curious point about how we can learn more from those images than we even thought. You know, we can, we can potentially determine gender. We can potentially determine, you know, whatever other factors are now unlocking themselves. I guess it makes you wonder, and maybe this is part of why you folks have focused there with your technology, if we can analyze the entirety of an image, how much more is there to unlock? What other things that we didn't know we could find causality or correlation or what have you might be able to be untangled reliably and consistently if we could dig in deeper? Maybe this is part of the promise, it feels like. Yes. Yeah, so, so again, and this it's even actually bigger than this. So, so this is where we get into this idea of software 2.0. So, you know, we were in this model of I'm going to tell, if you think about computer vision, I'm going to tell the computer what to look for in this image. And that's going to tell me, lead me to a diagnosis. But you can think about it also in terms of NLP or recommend, a recommender model. I'm going to tell the model if this and this and this and this are present, then the person wants this thing. Or I'm going to draw the correlations and then I'm going to tell the model to go look for those correlations. Where we're moving to now is we're going to let the data tell us what the correlations and hopefully the causes are. So we don't have to limit the information that we're getting from the data, the information that we're getting from the knowledge graph, the information that we're getting from the image to only what we think leads us to that diagnosis or that recommendation. We're going to actually be able to use all that data and let the data lead us and say, here's something that you might not have thought of, but is definitely there. Here, here's something counterintuitive that's in the data that is a revelation or is an insight. So that's really where this being able to unlock this next generation of technology comes in is to move from that model of you're still directing all of the activity to where you can actually allow the data to tell you some things that you didn't know. Yeah, yeah. You, you can ask for a category of insights or look for, a, discover a pattern without, again, uh, pinpointing, you know, this precise thing or these precise criteria. And there's, there's a bit of work there now, you know, this dynamic that you talk about. I, I forget when I read about it, but there was some look at, I think it was malignant and benign tumors. I forget where, what body location, but looking at a massive corpus of these and then essentially discerning what has the human 
body of knowledge kind of coaxed out as the correlations and real differences, early stage, mid stage, whatever, of, of whether uh, this is cancerous. And being able to kind of take and itemize that list that, that humans have discerned and really feel clear, and then running machine learning on top of it and basically asking the question, okay, what, what were the emergent patterns between the ones that were this condition, this condition, and finding maybe two or three additional things. Some of the things humans had already found, but, but maybe whole additional patterns. Maybe not all of them are tremendously promising, but maybe a couple of them are breakthrough level promising. And it feels like if we could do that in every part of medicine, that could really unlock a lot. Well, sure. An individual doctor, say, for instance, a dermatologist, and, and dermatology is one of the areas where computer vision is taking off Definitely. You know, first, ophthalmology, dermatology. He's only going to see, she's only going to see a certain number of these things in their career. Lifetime, yeah, exactly. Um, and they're going to you know, be using references and things like that. But if you can load a couple hundred thousand of these weren't and these were, you know, as that corpus of, of knowledge and that corpus of images grows, you know, that could be a tremendous, again, similar to the retinopathy, you know, maybe I could go for a screening. I don't need to get a appointment with a doctor. Maybe I can be much less expensive, much faster, just sort of body picture. And then if one or two things pings, then I can go to the doctor and they can, they can do that review. So I, I think that most of these things we talk about in healthcare and life sciences, there's going to be a human in the loop for a long, long oh, time. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think most, most people want that and it's advisable. But the problem that we have is there's a shortage of this expertise and we have an aging population. We have a population getting sicker. So, you know, we have a lot of doctor burnout from trying to use some of the technology that has been brought into medicine, maybe not well thought out. So if we can ease some of that, you know, if you think about, again, uh, NLP, the ability to understand language. So there's companies doing, you know, basically I go in for my doctor's appointment and it records the whole thing and turns it into a transcript. Yeah. And it can tell which parts of, if you and I sit down and Doug says, oh, I saw your kid at soccer practice Sunday. He looked great. He's killing it. Oh, yeah, it's great. I saw your uh, daughter at tennis practice and it was amazing. It knows that that's not important. Yeah. We're yeah. not talking about anything yet. Yeah. But then when we start talking about what the substantive, it can pull that out and it can do a summary that can be placed into an AHR. And then the doctor, instead of spending 10 minutes working on the 10-minute visit he had, Maybe it's just a minute reviewing that what the NLP created before he pushes a button, it goes into the HR. So if you multiply that by 20 visits a day, you're starting to talk about an ex a completely different experience for that physician who can now focus on the patient and not have to be like, I got to get this guy out of here because now I got I to gotta do all the typing and do all, use all this stuff that I don't like to do. Yeah, n none of them like to do it, that's for sure. And finding the junctures of the workflows where this tech can make its progress, as you're well aware, is really the hard work. And you guys are hard at work doing exactly that. But fortunately today, we've been able to paint a really nice broad picture of where some of those opportunities are to augment these experts. Uh, and hopefully this has been useful for the listeners. Bill, I appreciate you being able to join us for the show. Thanks so much for your time. No, it was great. I appreciate you having me. And uh, anytime, always happy to talk about this.
So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Bill for joining us, and thank you to you as our listener for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. As I mentioned, this episode was sponsored by Samba Nova. If you're interested in reaching Emerge's global AI audience, you can go to emerj.com slash ad1. That's ad like advertise, and then the number one. Between email newsletters, podcasts, Emerge.com, co-branded research, and more, Emerge Creative Services offers AI brands multiple pathways to develop their thought leadership, to refine their market message, develop their thought leadership, and go to market with confidence. You can learn more at emerj.com ad1 if you're interested in reaching Emerge's audience. Otherwise, again, thank you so much for staying tuned for this episode. I look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.